I read an article in uh, Christianity Today a few weeks ago and, and uh, kind of made a mental note that this might come in handy, and it does this week. Jen Pollock Michelle is the author, and um, the article is called Move Over, Sex and Drugs, Ease is the New Vice. She points to two remarkable findings. One recent piece of research shows that teens are starting their sex lives a lot later, in part because they find sex in some way tiresome. The second piece of research shows that declining cereal sales have to do with the common perception that cereal is an inconvenient breakfast choice because it requires cleanup after eating it. It's a little funny, both of those things, but they point to something that is much more disturbing as a cultural trend. Listen to uh, um, Jen Pollock Michelle summarizing that. She says, the decline in sexual activity and cereal sales hardly seem correlated, but both seem to point to one of the most seductive promises of a technological age, that ours should be an unbothered life. As our lives, at least in the developed world, get easier, we are increasingly formed by the desire for ease. Of all the cautions we raise about technology, its distractions and temptations, its loneliness and superficiality, this promise of unencumbered living is perhaps the most insidious danger and also the one we talk the least about. I think this is very insightful for our day. And today, as we continue our sermon series on the seven deadly sins, that's our series during Lent, today we come to sloth. And I'm going to preach this sermon to myself, and I encourage you to listen in if it applies to you also. When I say that, I do say it a little bit in a rhetorical way, but I also say it because it does apply to me very much. My day this morning started with repentance for sloth. And so I am very much aware of this struggle and would love this to speak to me as well as to you. So this is how I'd like to approach our topic this morning. First, I'd like to look at sloth, what it is and how it works. Secondly, I'd like to look at how the gospel gives us victory over sloth. And finally, I'd like us to look at some practical steps you can take in your battle with this particular sin. If you prefer an alliterated outline, as I do, here it is. Number one, rejection of life. Number two, return of life. And number three, rule of life. So let's get into it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work through six passages from Proverbs. You were wondering why I hadn't read Scripture until now, because I'm going to read it right now. And we're going to look at briefly at these six passages from Proverbs to get an image or images of sloth. So I'm going to read them and make just a few comments and read the next one. So if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to give you references. If you want to just listen, that's fine. They're not going to be on the screen. There are too many of them. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? 
When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Notice here that the opposite of sloth is ant-like single focus on what is really important, which leads to security and flourishing. The contrast here, ants know what to do, and they do it with all their strength. And the sluggard, on the other hand, the person who's dealing with sloth, me, lacks focus and motivation. And that problem then leads not to flourishing, but to lack of what is necessary for life. It leads to ruin. Proverbs 13, verse 4, the next passage, 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul of the sluggards craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now here we see the importance of diligence in pursuing the right desires and finding fulfillment for those desires. Sloth results in frustrated desires. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a, a letters of, a, of an experienced tempter, experienced devil, written to his protege, kind of training him how to tempt people. C.S. Lewis, uh, through the voice of Screwtape, says... An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. That is the experience of those who are dealing with sloth. The, the desire is increasing, but the pleasure is diminishing. Proverbs 15 through 19, or 15 verse 19, I'm sorry. Proverbs 15 verse 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The paradox of sloth is that in seeking ease, it causes hardship. The life of sloth is actually rather unpleasant, like a hedge of thorns, while the path of the upright marked by diligence and determination, is a level road where you can move quickly and safely. Next passage, Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now here again, we see the consequence of sloth being ruined. It leads to destruction. It leads away from life and towards, towards death. Sloth robs us of life. Proverbs 26, just a page or two further. Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 16. 26, 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its, on its hinges, 
so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. What a vivid picture, isn't it? It's interesting. It shows that in the sluggard's mind, what he is doing is perfectly reasonable. However, his perception of reality is completely off. He's not wise. And of course, wisdom in Scripture, as you know, wisdom means, means practical living in light of the way life is and should be. Wisdom is very practical, especially in the book of Proverbs. So what seems wise to the sluggard is utterly ridiculous to those who are actually wise. The sluggard does not even have enough motivation to bring food to his mouth, which sounds and looks ridiculous. But in his mind, everything makes sense. And finally, our last passage, Proverbs 21, verse 25. And again, we see the interplay of desire and effort in this passage. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Okay. This is the Bible's description of the sin of sloth. It points to unfulfilled desire, false view of reality, and the trajectory toward ruin. This is why I want us to see sloth, according to Scripture, as fundamentally as a rejection of life. Fighting with sloth is actually fighting for your life. Sloth is apathy, toward the true priorities of life. That's the definition on your card if you're collecting these for today. It's apathy toward the true priorities of life. It's not to say that those who are dealing with sloth have no priorities. Their priorities are just wrong. They're not true priorities of life, and they don't lead to more life and a deeper experience of life. Sloth is not pursuing what's important. And thus, sloth is foolish. It's unwise. A person who is constantly late to work because they oversleep will lose their job, which will cause financial hardship. That's wisdom. That's just how life is. That's how life should be. A person who watches TV or plays video games instead of doing homework will get lower test results, which will likely affect future educational and career opportunities. A person who gets fast food every night instead of shopping and cooking will see their health decline. A person who does not spend time regularly with God by reading scripture and praying will not grow spiritually. Now these are obvious examples, and they show us that sloth is in fact a rejection of life that's rooted in the false view of priorities. Sloth, in many ways, is a slow death. It is apathy toward what life should be. It's not caring what we ought to care about. It's lack of appetite for life. Sloth is laziness of the soul. Now let me pull back the curtain a little bit and show you and myself how sloth works. Because once we get this, this is, this is what I want to tell you, that once we understand how sloth actually operates... 
we can, we can apply the gospel to it and we can fix it. I think God can change that. So if you're discouraged this morning and you're dealing with sloth like me and you're discouraged, I want you to know that the gospel does bring hope into it, but we need to understand how it connects. So let me show you how it works. Why is it so hard to overcome that? Why is it so easy to justify sloth? I'm going to quote from James K.A. Smith. James K.A. Smith and he describes how human beings operate. He says, To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. We adopt ways of life that are indexed to such visions of the good life. Not usually because we think through our options, but rather because some picture captures our imagination. What he's saying is that our choices are in line with the vision of the good life, what we consider to be fulfilling and flourishing. And our choices are often not based on a rational plan, but on a picture of the good life, of this vision of a kingdom that has captured our imagination. And if the picture of the good life does not correspond to life as it should be, to reality, our choices slowly lead us to death. Now listen to Smith again. While being human means that we can't not love something ultimate, some version of the kingdom. It doesn't mean we necessarily love the right things or the true king. God has created us for himself and our hearts are designed to find their end in him. Yet many spend their days restlessly craving rival gods, frenetically pursuing rival kingdoms. The subconscious longings of our hearts are aimed and directed elsewhere. Our orientation is askew. Our erotic compass malfunctions, giving us false bearings. When this happens, the results can be disastrous. Now, according to Smith, which I think is according to the Bible, I think he's working out an insight from Scripture. We're all driven by some vision of what we think life should be, some version of the kingdom. The problem is that our versions of the kingdom are not right. And if our vision of the good life does not actually correspond to reality, as defined by God himself, who defines what real is, who creates what real is, well, then we are not pursuing life at all. In fact, we're going in the wrong direction towards a tragic disaster. Now, I really want us to get this mechanism. We do whatever we do in accordance with what we imagine to be good. Everybody has a vision of what your life should be of what you're pursuing. And often our choices, the way we set priorities, the way we organize our schedules, are not thought through rationally to say, I need to do this so I can get there. Our heart is just captured by a picture, by a vision, by an image. And we naturally support that through working out our desires and our choices and priorities. Now let me apply it to sloth specifically because this is much broader than a particular sin, but let's apply it specifically to sloth, and you will see how significant it is for us to understand 
that this is how we work, how our hearts operate. As Jen Pollock Michelle pointed out, the vision of the good life that seems to capture the imagination of many people today is the vision of the kingdom of ease, of an unbothered, unencumbered by effort life. Now that's a vision, that's a picture. That's what many of us think our life should be. That's what many of us think is flourishing or fulfillment, is this kingdom of ease. We prioritize rest, comfort, immediate pleasure, and satisfaction. Now why do we do that? Because our imagination is captured by this version of the kingdom. But this vision of the kingdom does not correspond to reality. It's unwise. And as this false kingdom, kingdom of ease, captures our imagination more and more, our motivation to pursue a different kingdom, a better one, becomes less and less. And that is sloth. And our longings, since they are oriented toward the wrong kingdom, are perpetually unfulfilled, making the sluggard's life like a hedge of thorns and awaiting death by frustrated desire. Now let me put it this way. Slothfulness is based in our vision of the kingdom of ease, which envisions ourselves as its king. Now every kingdom has a king. And every picture of the kingdom, every picture of the good life, every picture of what you think is fulfilling or flourishing has somebody who gives it to you, somebody who establishes that kingdom and rules over it. In the kingdom of ease, I am the king. And I determine its priorities. So every day, I have a royal audience with myself, and I determine the agenda of my kingdom. But because I'm not really a king, you see, I'm just pretending, and this kingdom of ease is not really a kingdom, just a pretend kingdom, my priorities are not the true priorities of life. And my choices actually lead to a rejection of true life. Do you see how twisted we get by sin? I have this vision of what I think the good life is. It's captured my imagination. I think for me to be fulfilled is for me to be at ease. That's what I think. Not even consciously, but this is part of how I see life. And because of that vision, I do what makes me reach that. And I determine the priorities of the kingdom, and I determine the agenda of the kingdom, and I decide what I want to do to reach that. But I'm not a king, and this is really not a kingdom. So it inevitably leads to frustration. And it inevitably leads to destruction. And because it's not a true life, what I'm envisioning, it's not actually real. What I do by pursuing my kingdom is I'm getting farther and farther away from the real kingdom and the real life. And that is the tragedy of sloth. So many of us think sloth is, is an innocent vice. Well, so what? You know, I just sleep more or I, you know, lazy or whatever. I don't do stuff, whatever that is. And we think it's, it's kind of this superficial, not very significant sin to address. But what we're actually doing, we are pursuing death. That's what we're doing. And unless we deal with sloth, unless we really declare war on one of many sins we're looking at, particularly at sloth, unless we really battle with it, how can we have life? And how can we have life 
to the fullest. Now, that's, that's how it works. That's what it is. Now, let me give you the solution to this. How does Jesus, through his word, through who he is, how does he return life to us? If we are already set against him, we already said we're, we're looking at a different kingdom and we've placed a different king on the throne, and our vision of life is very different from the real life, how does Jesus deal with that? How does he return true life to us? We need an accurate picture of that. You see, we need an accurate picture of the good life. We need the right version of the kingdom that we can reorient our desires toward and set the right priorities. See, I don't think the opposite of sloth is discipline. And I think discipline is very important, and I will talk about it at the end. But I think the opposite of sloth is passion. It's zeal. And so for us to change... We need an overpowering passion for another kingdom. And ultimately for another king. So let me tell you about Jesus and his kingdom because that is what should capture our imagination. That is what should create this new vision of a new kingdom that actually is real and in accordance with God's reality. And when it does that, when our hearts are, are, are enthralled by that, then we can talk about setting priorities and making choices. Jesus came as the true king to restore the kingdom of God. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, after you have the long narrative of his birth, right? And then you have the John the Baptist, then you have the temptation or baptism and temptation of Jesus. And then when Jesus is finally ready to, to, to minister to people, right? To begin, officially begin his ministry. His first sermon, his first proclamation is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that tells you something about why he came. He came to give us the kingdom. And he's saying, repent, because you have all sorts of versions of this kingdom that aren't right. So turn away from that and embrace the kingdom I have come to give you. His whole life, Jesus' life, can be seen as his kingdom invading ours. What a king. That he went to his enemy's kingdom to save us from ourselves. The life of God is returned to humanity by God joining us in our slow descent toward death. What a king. Think about Jesus in light of our topic. His kingdom is not a kingdom of ease. And he's not a king obsessed with his own comfort and pleasure. His vision of the good life that controls him, right? Because everybody's like that. Even God is like that. Even his imagination is controlled perfectly by the vision of the good life. Jesus' vision of the good life includes the whole creation reconciled back to God. And Jesus is bothered by his people's plight. He is zealous for the Father's glory. He is driven by love. Jesus' life models for us a passion for the true priorities of life. Not only did he live it out himself, but he taught us. I mean, you read the, especially Matthew, but you read the Gospel of Matthew, and you read through his teaching. How many times did he describe this kingdom to us? So many parables where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Why? Because we don't understand it. Our vision of the kingdom is not the same. 
And so he needs to break us out of our false conceptions so we can see what the kingdom really is. You see, we think it's spectacular. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he's retraining us. He's retraining our imagination. How often did Jesus expose the false versions of the kingdom? His confrontations with the Pharisees. Where he's saying that's not how things actually are. How intentionally did Jesus train his disciples to live according to the true priorities of life? Our life in the kingdom of God is presented as following Jesus, this king who came into our existence to give us the kingdom, to show us the kingdom, and we are to follow him. Or in other words, being his disciple, which is why at Chatham we say our purpose is to make disciples. That's the main thing. It's the same as saying we want to give the kingdom, the right kingdom to people. Jesus himself is the vision that must capture our imagination. Apostle Paul says it simply in Philippians 1. For to me, for me, he says, to live is Christ. How much simpler can we get? For me to live is Christ. My, my whole life is defined by this one person, by the king. And in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Life in the kingdom of God is a life focused on Jesus. It's following him. It's embracing his priorities and reflecting his character. Jesus came to restore life to us, and he himself is the life. So when he tells us to live this new life, he is the one who lives it with us, through us. Now this life flows through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh yes, the kingdom is not just an idea. The kingdom is a reality that's brought into us, into our lives and into our very selves by the Spirit of God. So when Jesus came to give us the kingdom, he says, I'm, I'm really going to do this. This reality is being worked out by the Holy Spirit, like in Romans 14, for example. Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's comes as a rebuke to some of us, because for us, our vision of the kingdom, our good life really is about eating and drinking. Talked about it last week. But the kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit, who is the Lord, the giver of life. Now, does this vision of the kingdom of the good life, capture your imagination. When you think about Jesus coming into the world to give us life and to give us life to the fullest, life abundant, refusing to live at ease, connecting himself forever with us by his incarnation, does that stir up zeal in your heart? It must, it should. Let me tell you a little bit more about this king and his kingdom. To save us from death, Jesus chose to die for us. Yeah, this is not a king of the kingdom of ease. He offers his life for us. 
Because the kingdom, as it comes to us, it comes at the cost of his own life. Does the vision of Christ dying for you, writhing in pain so you could be free from all the false conceptions of various kingdoms and lives, being crushed by God's wrath so you can be forgiven, giving up his spirit so you can receive God's Holy Spirit, his blood flowing from his side so that God's life can flow through you. Does that image, does that picture, does that truth capture your imagination and animate your passion for true life, for true kingdom? Jesus died so you can live. That's the gospel. Jesus died so you can live. How can we not pursue life to the fullest if it costs Jesus his life to give it to us? This is why we cannot speak of transformation purely in rational terms. Because it's not rational. Because if we understood this, we would live perfectly. And we understand this, but we don't live perfectly. Because other visions control us. Jesus' life and death are expressions of his grace. I have to talk about grace. Every time we preach, we must talk about grace. He gives himself to the undeserving. So when he comes and he says, I have this kingdom, I have this life, and I'm going to offer it to you, I'm going to give it to you, and it will flow through the work of the Holy Spirit into you. He offers that by grace. He gives himself to us. He gives this kingdom, he gives this life to us, to us who are struggling with cleaning up after breakfast. That's us. Much less seeking after God with our whole heart. Right? Let's figure out breakfast first before we talk about moral perfection. Grace is Christ's greatest effort to help the least interested, the least motivated, the least energetic seekers of God. Does that grace empower you? Does it create a zeal, a passion in your life? Or do you simply relegate it to forgiveness and a future existence with God. Now listen to one writer who talks about the power of grace for now. He says, that's what the grace of God is for. Not simply to balance a ledger, but to stimulate the spurts of growth in zeal, in enthusiasm for shalom, in good hard work, in sheer delicious gratitude for the gift of life, in all its pain, in all its wonder. Grace is supposed to do that. Grace is supposed to transform us, not just forgive us, but supposed to also transform us. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jesus and his kingdom. He lived to show us the kingdom. He died to free us from our allegiance to the wrong kingdom. And then he rose from the dead to give us that kingdom. Jesus' resurrection is the point of reversal from death to life. It tells us that his kingdom is a kingdom of hope. Now listen to me now. Things will not be as they are now. The resurrection teaches us that. That a new thing is happening, and it will develop, and it will grow, and there will be a cosmic event where everything will be right. 
Restoration is coming. Coming for those who follow the risen king. We will experience what we experience now in part. We'll experience it in full. And we will know life in the fullest measure. Our desires will be perfectly directed toward God. And they will be perfectly fulfilled in God. We live in hope of that. And by hope, I mean an expectation of that. Because the resurrection guarantees that. Christ is just the first fruit. He's the first one. All of us will be risen. And all of us will experience that full, restored life. We will live in complete harmony with reality. Now we're confused, but there will be a time when everything will be as it should be, and we will know it the way it should be known. We will worship with our whole being, not just parts of it in segments of time, but with our whole being. We will work and rest in perfect rhythm. Does this eschatological vision of renewed creation, does it not break you out of your sloth and make you passionate for his kingdom now? The kingdom of hope, awaiting him in expectation that things will be the way they're supposed to be. But now I will live powered by that passion. If you get this picture, if I get this picture, if I, if I can hold on to this image of the good life, this image of the right kingdom with the right king, if it controls my imagination, then, then, I can conquer sloth. Now, I'm going to finish by briefly talking about the practical implications of that. And I hope that this is so practical that you go home today and you sit down and do these things. There's much more to say, of course, about Christ and his kingdom, but, but we have to get practical here before we are done. Now, remember, the real key to our victory over sloth is our hearts being captured by the vision of the kingdom and our refocusing on the true priorities of life. But how do we do that? I'd like to suggest to you that we need to embrace intentional living. Intentional living. And that is the discipline that you have on your card. Intentional living. I'm going to give you another term for it. And the term for it is a rule of life. A rule of life. It's a monastic term. The monks would schedule stuff they would look at the priorities of a Christian and they would actually then work it out in their daily and weekly and, and yearly routines. The monastic life at its best, a lot of abuses of course, but at its best was meant to be governed by specific priorities of the kingdom that are secured by patterns or habits. Christian monks organize their days, weeks, and years according to specific rhythms reflecting the vision of the good life. Prayer, work, meals, sleep, conversation. It was all regulated by a rule of life to maximize kingdom living. Now, I am not advocating monasticism. I'm not. Because I think this could be done in real life. I don't think we need to run away to do this. And I think we can do it by being part of the kingdom of the world and yet infusing the kingdom of God into it. I don't think separation is required to make this happen. Now let me put it differently. I would like us to consider developing a liturgy of life. 
a liturgy of life that is powered by the passion for Jesus and his kingdom. Now, everyone has a liturgy that they follow. For some, it includes the nightly news. That's your liturgy. For some, it is built around their school schedule. That's maybe your liturgy. For some, it is governed by their phone. And on Sunday, when that report comes on my iPhone, how much time I spent in the previous week, and by the way, this week, my time is up by several minutes, I wonder how much of my daily rhythm is governed by my use of the phone. That is also a liturgy. We're all liturgical creatures. We all crave rhythms and patterns. For most, our liturgies are shaped by our culture or by our families, and they are not intentionally assessed. But what if, let me, let me throw out this crazy idea at you, and I want you to really consider it, and I want you to really work it out in your life, if it makes sense to you. What if we intentionally pursued a liturgy that would be in line with the priorities of the kingdom of God? What if we intentionally pursued a rule of life, an organization of your time and energy and resources that would reflect as closely as possible the priorities of the kingdom of God? What if we had that passion and we would actually do that? Now let me give you some ideas of how to do that. And I'm, I'm going to scratch the surface here. This is, this is a homework type of stuff, okay? So take this, go home and say, how do I intentionally work, work out a liturgy or a rhythm or a rule of my life that specifically reflects priorities of the kingdom that is powered by this passion for Jesus and his work? But let me give you some ideas. First, commit to a regular, and I suggest daily, audience with the king. Commit to a daily audience with the king. You cannot live rightly in his kingdom without regularly renewing the vision of the king and communing with him and hearing from him what the agenda of the kingdom is. Now I'm talking about the personal spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture reading. Those are the basic pieces of the Christian life. Is it part of the liturgy of your life? Is your life governed by regular time spent with the king and renewing that vision of the good life that comes straight from him. You look at him and you say, he is my life. For me to live is Christ. And this is what his kingdom looks like. And so I will organize the rest of my life based on these priorities. Do you have those spiritual disciplines down? You need to do that. You need to do that. The rest doesn't work unless we have regular communion with the king. Secondly, consider different areas of your life and how they reflect the kingdom of God. For example, this is very broad, but for example, are you in the rhythm, in the right rhythm of work and rest? The kingdom of God governs how we work and how we rest. The, the vision of the good life includes both work and rest. Are you in the right rhythm of that? Do you work too much? That's a problem. Do you rest too much? That is also a problem. Another area would be your finances. Are you spending money intentionally? Is it under the rule of life? Is it under the liturgy of life? Are you providing for those that you are supposed to provide for, including your family, certainly, but also those in need? 
Because that is how the kingdom of God manages money. Money is different in his kingdom than it is in our kingdom. Are you giving generously? Because that's a value of the kingdom. You see, budgeting and actually approaching your finances intentionally is a way to battle sloth. Because sloth is just unintentional use of resources and time. Do you, do you prioritize your relationships? That's another area to consider. Are you slothful in investing in other people? Do you prioritize your ease over the needs of others? Now, we can talk about so many things like sleep, entertainment, and eating, and time management. All those things we can talk about. But the point is to intentionally live in the kingdom and for the king. And so work it out. Look at those areas. Look at other areas in your life and see, are they under the liturgy of the king? And finally, thirdly, count on the support of other followers of Christ. So you commit to daily audience with the king. You consider all various parts of your life and submit them to the rhythm of the kingdom. But thirdly, you count on the support of other people who are doing the same as you are doing. The kingdom of God includes many people. And we are supposed to live in it together. Our church is an expression of the kingdom. So seek accountability and encouragement among your brothers and sisters who too are passionate about Christ and his kingdom. Even after our service is done, in just a few minutes, there will be people who will pray with you. There will be people who encourage you. Just come up front. Somebody will find you. You will find somebody to help you to process this. Count on the support of other followers of Christ. And I will finish with this quote from Thomas Manton, who was a Puritan. I don't think the Puritans got everything right, but I, I think they got a lot of things right. So I'm going to quote from a Puritan, Thomas Manton. He says, Everlasting joys will not drop into the mouth of the lazy soul. These things are not trifles. They will cost us diligence and seriousness. Everlasting joys will not drop into the mouth of the lazy soul. These things are not trifles. They will cost us diligence and seriousness. So as you reflect on what we heard today, repent from sloth as a rejection of life. Cultivate a passion for Christ through whom life is returned to us by grace and pursue intentional living in the kingdom of God.